By nature, I am a loner, a watcher of others, a skulker about the edges of the main herd, an avoider of the flock, a shadow rider like Tom Horn. I am a man born into the wrong century whose idea of heaven is to die and go where they work cattle and ride horses by daylight and dark. Will Henry. Hello and welcome to this speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast, featuring everything you need to know about Western wordslinger Will Henry, all in under 30 minutes, give or take. I'm Paul Bishop. My compadre Richard Prosh and I co-host the full-length episodes of the Six Gun Justice podcast, but ride solo for these speed listen bonus installments. In a prior episode of the Six Gun Justice podcast, I talked briefly about Western wordslinger Will Henry in his short story collection, I, Tom Horn, which I was really enjoying. At the time, it was my first exposure to Will Henry's work, but I was so impressed by his short stories, I began to learn more about him and to track down several of his full-length novels. I have now read over a half-dozen of his westerns, as well as another anthology of his short stories, and I remain stunningly impressed. Will Henry and Clay Fisher are both pseudonyms used by Henry Wilson Heck Allen on the more than 50 westerns he wrote between 1952 and 1978. In general, the moniker Clay Fisher was used to identify Allen's shorter, pulpier westerns. His books as Will Henry are more substantial, fundamentally and structurally deeper, from both a historical and psychological perspective. At least, that's what some sources say. However, more about this later. Born in Kansas City, Missouri in 1912, Allen never knew a time when he didn't want to be a writer. At age 12, he started sending short stories to Liberty and Collier's, two of the top magazine markets of the day, which showed both his youthful idealism and his lofty aspirations. His father encouraged Allen to major in journalism at the University of Missouri, but Allen found himself overtaken by wanderlust. Leaving the university after less than a year, he set out to follow his compulsion and explore the West, becoming a self-described vagrant. Traveling wherever the road took him, Allen supported himself with a variety of odd jobs. He was a shop clerk on an Indian reservation, a gold miner, a stable hand, a sugar mill crushing operator, an industrial shop swamper, as well as uncountable other menial positions. Like many writers before him, Allen would later channel all of these experiences into his novels in one form or another. Allen's wanderings eventually landed him in the sunny climes of Southern California, where he continued to scrounge for work. He was employed as a loader for a moving van company. He put in a stint pitchforking manure and hot-walking polo ponies. He filled in as a pump jockey at a service station. And of all things, he became a veterinary hospital assistant. Still pursuing the idea of being a writer, he was able to secure a position as a columnist for the Sunset Reporter, a newspaper published in Santa Monica, California. He also turned his experiences as a licensed dog show judge into articles for Dog World and Shepherd Dog Review. How and why he became a licensed dog show judge is a mystery lost to time. Always looking for writing opportunities, in 1935, he found a position as a freelance gag writer for Hugh Harmon and Rudolf Eisling's Barney Bear cartoon series. Two years later, at age 25, he joined his older brother Robert as a junior story writer in Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer's short subject department before moving to MGM's newly formed cartoon unit. 
his contract called for a salary of $250 a week with which to support his new wife, Amy Geneva Watson, whom he married in 1937 and with whom he would later have a son and a daughter. When possible, he also continued his travels throughout the West. As Alan Starr rose at MGM, he began a long collaboration with iconic animation director Tex Avery. Alan had already worked with Walter Lance, producer of the Woody Woodpecker and Chili Willie cartoons, as well as other MGM cartoon directors. However, in Avery, Alan found a kindred spirit. The two men had a natural affinity and found the same things funny. Avery, who was known for his body surrealistic style of humor, called Alan the best gag man I ever worked with. Avery trusted Alan and encouraged him to let loose the full range of his comedic cartoon talent. Alan and Avery collaborated on such characters as Screwy Squirrel, Red the Wolf, George and Jr., and Droopy Dog, including Northwest Hounded Police from 1946, which is listed as number 28 in the 50 greatest cartoons of all time. In addition, Alan and Avery created many one-off cartoons, including King Size Canary, The Cat That Hated People, The First Bad Man, Happy Go Nutty, The Shooting of Dan Magoo, Swing Shift Cinderella, Uncle Tom's Cabana, Bad Luck Blackie, and Cellbound. However, when asked about his work with Tex Avery, Alan modestly downplayed his involvement, claiming Avery most often simply used him as a sounding board for ideas. After a decade with MGM, Alan felt he needed a break from cartoons. Being an avid student of Western and Indian lore, he decided to try his hand at writing Westerns, even though he had read very little in the genre. To avoid any trouble with a studio, who he felt might object to his moonlighting, Alan chose to use the pseudonym Will Henry for his first novel, No Survivors. There were a few Western writers, such as Edgar Rice Burroughs, who would occasionally cast Native Americans in a sympathetic light. However, from his earliest writings, Alan made intelligent and humanistic Indian characters an integral part of his stories. Told from the Native American vantage point, No Survivors is a romanticized historical reconstruction of Custer's final moments and the fateful stand at the Battle of Little Bighorn. It is told in the first person by the fictional John Clayton, who is posited as an ex-Confederate officer who once saved Custer's life. Using Clayton's journals, the action follows his post-Civil War career on the Western frontier. As a civilian scout for the U.S. Army, he desperately tries to head off the Federal Massacre, but gets captured by Crazy Horse and integrated into the Agala Sioux tribe. For nine years, Clanton lives like an Indian, the adopted son of Crazy Horse and the husband of a medicine woman. As a Sioux warrior, he finds himself riding with the renegades against white invaders. But by the 1876 confrontation at Little Bighorn, he is forced to make a decision about who he truly is. A rivetingly authentic story with strong historical content and an emotionally wrenching conclusion, No Survivors remains one of the best first novels I've ever read. While he continued working on cartoons intermittently as a freelancer, the success of No Survivors allowed Allen to walk away from his position with MGM. From that point on, he supported his family by writing novels and short stories from his home in Encino, the suburb of Los Angeles. The pseudonym Clay Fisher was created when Random House rejected Allen's second novel, Red Blizzard, a grim tale of a half-breed ostracized by both Indians and whites alike, although both cultures are more than willing to take advantage of his inherent skills. Fisher's treatment of racism in the story was well ahead of his time, and possibly the reason for its rejection by Random House. When Red Blizzard found a home with Simon & Schuster, 
Allen chose to publish it using the Clay Fisher pseudonym. From that point on, Allen began a practice of writing under both names, making a distinction in his own mind between the stories he saw as historically based, as by Will Henry, and those he felt were dominated by action, as by Clay Fisher. In reality, this determination was made by the caprice of the publishing houses. If Random House, Allen's publisher or first choice, accepted a book, it was published under the Will Henry name. If Random House rejected a book, it went to another publisher under the pseudonym Clay Fisher. In 1954, Allen wrote the first of his two historical novels involving Custer. Written as Clay Fisher, Yellow Hair is a prequel to Custer's Last Stand, which he wrote as Will Henry. Yellow Hair tells the story of the Washita Massacre, which in many ways was a turning point toward Custer's ultimate destruction, along with that of the 7th Cavalry at the Battle of Little Bighorn. While aging Cheyenne Chief Black Kettle seeks an honorable peace, Custer will accept nothing less than the total destruction of the Cheyennes. Meanwhile, the younger Cheyenne subchief Mad Wolf grows ever more hostile. When Joshua Kelso, Custer's best scout, falls in love with the beautiful Monasticha, Mad Wolf schemes to use him to trap Custer. But Josh makes his way back to the army and must rescue the captive Monasticha before the coming massacre. The tale is both relentless and resolute. The difference between Yellow Hair, which Alan wrote as Clay Fisher, and Custer's Last Stand, which was published over 20 years later in 1976 as by Will Henry, perfectly illustrates the difference Alan originally established between the two pseudonyms. Yellow Hair concentrates on character and action. The history is there, but solidly in the background. Custer's Last Stand, on the other hand, puts the history front and center, However, that doesn't mean the second book is any less compelling. To write Custer's Last Stand as Will Henry, Allen tracked down hundreds of documents and statements from both pony soldiers and their Native American adversaries in order to make his account of the oft-told story as accurate as possible. Greed, fraud, arrogance, and intentional murder are all present, but there's also courage, honor, and sacrifice. While even-handed for the most part, Custer still comes off as an egomaniacal narcissist who had delusions of becoming president once he exterminated the tribes aligned against him. On the other side, while Crazy Horse was the inspirational leader of the Indians, he was also blinded by his all-consuming hatred of the soldiers. Two very flawed men, seemingly pitted against each other with no concern over collateral damage. One of the most surprising things was how Custer's every tactic backfired on him in battle, in part because so many of Custer's fellow officers mistrusted him. They never disobeyed him, but their efforts were less than supportive. However, the enlisted ranks worshipped Custer, and led properly by their immediate supervisors, they could have possibly changed the outcome on the battlefield. The end result is Will Henry's historical take on Custer— is a rivetingly told, insightful look at a tragic event and the situations, decisions, and choices leading up to it. Of all the Custer-related novels I've read, Will Henry's Custer's Last Stand left the greatest impression on me. And I should mention, both Yellow Hair and Custer's Last Stand were published together in one paperback volume under the title Custer, as by Will Henry. I'd also like to mention Alan's novel, Who Rides with Wyatt? Written before historians had thoroughly researched Wyatt Earp, the Clantons, Johnny Behan, John Clume, and others, Allen relied on oral history for the basis for the story. When Wyatt Earp becomes a sheriff of Tombstone, known at the time as a Sodom in the Sagebrush, 
he uses his long barrel Colt and his shotgun to clean up the town, ridding it of stagecoach holdups, cattle rustlers, and gunfire in the streets. Allen fills in the historical blanks in the story at the time with a certain amount of conjecture and speculation, including inventing an epic friendship between Wyatt Earp and Johnny Ringo. But Allen keeps everything moving and entertaining, and I personally dig it when enemies bond but still got to do what they got to do. And to round out this survey of some of Allen's finest works, From Where the Sun Stands Now from 1959 is his remarkable spur-winning Western novel based on the events of the 113 days in the summer of 1877 when Chief Joseph reluctantly led his people in a rearguard action from the Nez Perce Reservation in Oregon to Montana, across more than 1,000 miles of crackless country. As the journey moves along with the inevitability of a train wreck, the story is beautifully told through the eyes of Hayats, a 17-year-old warrior. This is a saga of loyalty and treachery, tragedy and triumph. As Hayats explains, that is the way a white man remembers a battle. So many soldiers here, so many there, such a captain here, such a lieutenant there, this colonel in one place, that major in another, but not an Indian. An Indian remembers where his mother fell bayoneted, or his little brother had his skull smashed, or his big sister cried for mercy and was shot in the mouth. Aside from his praiseworthy treatment of Native American characters in his fiction, Allen's novels, with few exceptions, have two other consistent characteristics. The first is his penchant for creating fictional heroes to insert into the context of his historical backgrounds. In some ways, Giving readers this type of everyman character allows them to experience historical settings and events through the character, as opposed to resorting to info dumps to put the events in context. However, in doing this, Allen often made literary choices more consistent with the hero's character than the actual facts of an event. In his defense, Allen always maintained his works were fiction built upon history, not fiction paraded as history. Second, his heroines are almost always of exceptional beauty, more pedestal-dweller than realistic portrayal, without much depth of character. This is not particularly obvious, as it only becomes notable with exposure to a wide number of Allen's books. And even then, it's remarkable simply because of the depth of his male hero and Native American characters. Despite these small drawbacks, Allen's writing is remarkably vivid and accessible. His storytelling skill shows his extraordinary versatility within his chosen genre. His tales are rich with action, adventure, irony, pathos, humor, and a definite affinity for the horseback tribes of the plains, and specifically the Apache. His books contain all the basic ingredients that make the tragicomedy of human existence such a fascinating affair. While not graphic by today's standards, Allen's westerns are definitely gritty, Bad things happen, and his heroes aren't always heroic. Tough survivors, perhaps, but not necessarily pure white hats. Eight of Allen's novels were adapted for the big screen. Journey to Shiloh, To Follow a Flag, The North Star, Santa Fe Passage, The Tall Men, Young Billy Young, McKenna's Gold, and Yellowstone Kelly. I haven't seen all the films based on Allen's books, but there are three I'd like to cover. 1969's McKenna's Gold was directed by J. Lee Thompson, starring an ensemble cast featuring Gregory Peck, Omar Sharif, Telly Savalas, Ted Cassidy, and Julie Newmar in lead roles. Based on the standalone novel of the same name, 
The film failed to light up the domestic box office, but was a major hit in Europe and in other regions, such as the Soviet Union, Central Asia, and on the Indian subcontinent. The novel was loosely based on the legend of the lost Adams diggings. According to the legend, a teamster named Adams and some prospectors in Arizona were approached by a Mexican Indian named Gotchier, who offered to show them a canyon filled with gold. However, in the novel, as well as the film, a gang abducts a marshal named McKenna, played by Gregory Peck in the film, to find a way to the canyon. But other groups are also looking for the treasure, and the Apaches are trying to keep the secret location undisturbed. In the book's author notes section, Alan gives credit to Frank Doby's work, recounting the legend in Apache Gold and Yaki Silver, a collection of tales about the fabulous treasures of the Southwest. The book, McKenna's Gold, covers the deep bond McKenna has with the Apache people and the land. It's consistently entertaining, featuring great characters, cracking pace, and vivid descriptions of the landscape. The film takes those vivid descriptions from the novel and translates them into widescreen splendor, with grand location shots in Monument Valley mixed in with scenes filmed in Zion and Bryce National Parks. The movie's a little campy for my taste. It's also a bit schizophrenic, with serious shootouts one second, and then scenes of characters relaxing in a cool secret water-filled pond the next. However, anything with Julie Newmar in it is worth watching. And she's terrific here as Hesh K, the vicious, obsessive, compulsive Apache squaw camp follower. Ted Cassidy, of Lurch fame, is also good in his role as the Apache Hachita. And then there's a scene with acting heavyweights Keenan Wynn, Edward G. Robinson, Eli Wallach, Burgess Meredith, Anthony Quayle, Omar Sharif, Raymond Massey, and Lee J. Cobb, all sitting around the campfire like the Fellowship of the Ring hunting gold in the Old West. They are joined near the end by Telly Savalas as a sadistically cruel army sergeant. Personally, I prefer the film version of Yellowstone Kelly, which Alan wrote under his Clay Fisher pseudonym. Made in 1959 with a screenplay by Burt Kennedy, Directed by Gordon Douglas, the film stars Clint Walker as a real-life historical figure, Luther Sage Yellowstone Kelly. Originally, the film version was supposed to be directed by John Ford, with John Wayne in the Clint Walker role. But Ford and Wayne opted to make The Horse Soldiers instead. After the exit of Ford and Wayne, Warner Brothers scrambled to improvise. Their solution was to use the stars of their then-popular Warner Brothers Western television shows, including Clint Walker from Cheyenne, who Warner Brothers were contractually obligated to give a big screen role, Lawman's John Russell, Ed Kooky Burns from 77 Sunset Strip, and the Alaskans' Ray Danton. The switch worked surprisingly well, creating a fun family movie with familiar faces, a solid script, and use of a big screen budget to make the small screen stars look good. An underrated director, Gordon Douglas was competent in many film genres, but he shined in the Western arena with such films as Rio Conchos, Baquero, and Fort Dobbs. But Yellowstone Kelly is arguably his best effort. 1969's Young Billy Young, based on the Clay Fisher novel Who Rides with Wyatt, was written and directed by the ever-reliable Burt Kennedy and starred Robert Mitchum, Angie Dickinson, and Robert Walker Jr. The film is as laconic as its main star, Robert Mitchum, who manages some sparks with Angie Dickinson. Then again, who wouldn't? And he doesn't overpower his lesser-known co-star, Robert Walker Jr. It's an entertaining outing, filled with great dialogue and a killer wisecrack delivered by Mitchum in the film's closing scene. Allen was also honored by winning the Spur Award from the Western Writers of America five times for his novels, including The Gates of the Mountains, From Where the Sun Stands Now, and Chiricahua. 
He was also given a Levi Strauss Award for Lifetime Achievement. I've found when I turn the last page of a Will Henry or Clay Fisher title, the stories left an indelible impression upon me. More than simple entertainments, his books make me think and adjust my perspective on events. And there are certainly millions of Will Henry fans who agree with me. Not taking into account the hardcover sales of 46 of his 53 books, Bantam Books alone has sold over 50 million paperback copies of his titles. Thanks for listening to this bonus speed listen installment of the Six Gun Justice podcast. Remember to check out our website at sixgunjustice.com for regularly updated reviews, articles, and interviews from the best of the Western wordslingers. Prior Six Gun Justice podcast episodes, Six Gun Justice speed listen installments, and Six Gun Justice conversations are available on all major podcast streaming platforms. Till next time, be kind to yourself, be kind to others, and keep reading Westerns. Adios. I'm out of here. Let's ride.